Well, good morning. It is good to be with you this morning, praying for all of those in our body who are not feeling well, many not feeling well, and glad that you're able to be here this morning with us. It's a great, great morning this morning as we approach Acts chapter 4, a prayer here of the early Christians, a prayer for courage. If you would join me in standing as we read God's word this morning, Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse number 23. Going to read verse 23 down to verse 31. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and continue to speak the word of God with boldness. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Over the last couple of weeks, we have looked at a text where a miracle is performed. Peter and John going into the temple, see a lame man who has been lame from birth, Seeing him, they approach him. They order him to, to look at them. And as he does, expecting them to give him some money, he says, Peter says, silver and gold have I none, but what I, have give to, I give to you in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. And the man experiences a resurrection that day as he, as he is sitting at the temple gate. He experiences a resurrection and Peter uses that miracle, that event, to preach a sermon about the resurrection, about the fact that if Israel will repent of their sin, and not just Israel, but if anyone will repent and turn from their sin and trust, believe in the name of Jesus, they will be restored. They will experience a resurrection. They will be made whole. And he appeals to Israel and to anyone listening, to trust in the name of Jesus. He alone has the power to save. Upon this preaching and teaching, Peter and John are arrested by the Sadducees, the religious leaders who control the Temple Mount. And they are arrested and brought before uh, 
a whole host of the high priestly family, an, an entire group of leaders, a great number of them. They are placed in the midst and they are questioned as to their activity. And last week we looked at the response of Peter and John to their questioning when the leaders ask, by whose name or in whose power do you do this thing? Peter and John answer courageously, boldly, with clarity, with conviction, and they testify to the name and the authority and the power of Jesus. There is no other name, Peter says, given among men whereby we must be saved. And this preaching brings into condemnation the religious leaders who opposed Jesus, who crucified him. And it brings a hope of salvation to all those who hear and all those who listen and all those who take to heart the message of the name and the power of the name of Jesus. After Peter and John's bold witness, the religious leaders have nothing to do with it. They can't do anything with them because the fact that the man has been healed is evident to everyone. And they cannot, their hands are tied. They cannot do anything to Peter and John. And so they threaten Peter and John one last time. They threaten them. And they say, you will no longer preach. You will no longer speak. You will no longer teach in this name, the name of Jesus. And Peter says, whether it's right in God's sight for us to listen to you rather than God, you must judge that. But we cannot but speak. We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And threatening them, the religious leaders threatening them, release them. And Peter and John go back to their friends. And that is the text we see today. What happens when they go back to their friends, those believers that they are joined with? They go back to their friends. And upon hearing the report, their friends pray. All of them together pray. They lift up their voices and pray together as a result of the threats the religious leaders have made. Last week we we talked about courage, the need for courage. And in our small group time, I, I made the statement that courage is an admirable quality. Everyone around the globe, admires courage, tales and stories of courage. We all admire courage, but for the Christian, for the Christian, courage is not merely an admirable quality. For the Christian, courage is a necessary quality. We must have courage. It is necessary as a Christian to have courage. And today we're going to look at a prayer, a prayer for courage, a prayer for boldness. I believe it is the responsibility of every pastor, every pastor, every faithful pastor to prepare people for persecution and suffering. We must build a capacity for suffering, a capacity for persecution and enduring persecution. Not only is the responsibility of every faithful pastor, I believe it's the responsibility of every leader in the church, every small group leader, 
I believe it's a responsibility of every father and mother to build into their family a capacity for difficulty and enduring difficulty, capacity for suffering, and specifically for enduring persecution, the persecution that comes when we bear witness to the name of Jesus. You know, we ask this question all the time when we go through the Acts. I hear this question all the time. Well, what about the sign gifts for today? We see them all over the book of Acts, right? The healings and the, the sign gifts. What about that? Why, why don't we see that today? And as I was studying this week, I just was struck with a thought. You know, that's an interesting question. Why don't we see these sign gifts today? Or are these sign gifts today? But, but a more pressing question to me is, why don't we see the type of boldness we see in the book of Acts? Why, why don't we see the type of courage we see in the book of Acts? Why as God's people do we not have, or why do we lack this capacity for difficulty, for suffering, for persecution? The prayer we're going to look at today is instructing us, telling us, teaching us how to pray for this type of courage. Hugh Latimer Maybe you know the story of Hugh Latimer. He was burned at the stake along with his friend, Nicholas Ridley, under Queen Mary. Hugh Latimer, as they were going to the stake, to be burned at the stake, said to his friend, Nicholas Ridley, Play the man, Master Ridley. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. I love reading stories and accounts of that type of courage. But how can we have that type of courage? How can we prepare for those moments where we will be brought to the stake, as it were, whatever that might be in your life? And how can we face those moments with courage and boldness, as Hugh Latimer did? I think this prayer instructs us, teaches us how. A prayer for courage. Let's look first at what a prayer for courage, or to whom a prayer for courage is addressed. Where do we address our petitions Verse 23, when they were released, Peter and John were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, and when they heard it, they started wringing their hands together and panicking and were thrown into chaos. When they heard it, what did they do? What did they do? They lifted their voices together to God. They prayed. This persecution did not bring panic and chaos. They didn't throw their hands up wondering what they were going to do. No, they turned to God and prayed together, corporately together to God. And look how they address Him. Look how they address this prayer To whom they address it. They lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord. 
who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. They address their prayer to the sovereign Lord. Here the word sovereign simply means he is the absolute, the absolute and final authority on all things. He is the one with the right to do as he pleases. He is the sovereign. He alone is God. And not only does he have the right to do as he pleases, but because of his position as the sovereign, everything he does is right. Not only does he have the right to do whatever he pleases, but everything he does is right. He is the sovereign. This is based on his position as the creator of all things. This is what they say. Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. He is the one who made all things. Revelation 4.11 says, You alone, Lord, are worthy to receive glory and honor and power, authority. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and are created. It is by his will that all things exist. It is by his will that you and I exist. It is by his will that everything you see, made and unmade or unseen, all of it exists by his will. And it continues to exist. By his will. He created all things and he sustains all things. And he is the owner, the ruler of all creation. He rules over everything. Even even those who do not acknowledge him and even those who directly outright oppose him, he created them. And they do not operate outside of His sovereign control, but under it, He is sovereign. He made all things out of nothing. He sustains all things by His Word and by His power. And this is important for you and I to remember and not, not just today, but every day. This, this is important for us as we start every day. To acknowledge this one simple reality. I am not God. I am not God. God, you are sovereign. I am not. You are creator. I am creation. I exist because you say so. I continue to exist because you say so. My life belongs to you. You are sovereign. 
I remember whenever I was first a dad. And do you, do you remember? Do you remember what this was like? Maybe some of you are going through this because you uh, you've just had a child, or you can imagine that. I would go every night, right? You're, you're in the middle of the night and you wake up and you're startled. I wonder if the baby's okay. I'm going to go and check to make sure the baby's okay. I remember feeling that way and doing that several times just because I, I was afraid. I was afraid. What if something happens to the baby while I'm in the other room and they're in this room and a, as if I could control anything. But it made me feel better, right, to go and look, to go and see would go into the room to check. I remember with our first, and everyone after that, I've had this type of moment where I picked little Hope up into my arms, little bitty Hope, she was almost 15, it's incredible, picked her up, and I remember a clear moment where I realized, it dawned on me, God, she does not belong to me. She's not mine. She belongs to you. You are the owner. You are the caretaker or or the, the sovereign. I am but the caretaker. I am but the steward of what you own. You are the one who is sovereign, not me. Now, I wish I could say that that one moment took care of the rest of my fears and the rest of my moments. But I return to that. And I, I return to that over and over and over and over again. We're getting ready to take that same little girl and put her in a car here before too long and send her out to drive around, right? How can I do that? Without fear and anxiety, I can only do that by trusting in the sovereign Lord who is the owner of all. I am not God. He alone is God. And look at what they say. They say, Sovereign Lord. So they say, they, they, by their prayer, they address it to their sovereign, but he is also their Lord. He is their master. They are his servants. They are submitted to him. To say that God is God and I am not is true. But what a blessed assurance comes underneath His sovereign power, instead of against it, instead of opposing it. Sovereign Lord, I am submitted to your sovereignty. I'm submitted to your place, your rightful place as the owner of all, as the ruler of all. I'm submitted to you. What you do is right. Sovereign Lord, where where do you lift your voice? In times of trouble. We all have trouble on ver- various levels. Where do you lift your voice? To where, where do you turn when life is difficult? This is very important for us. Because this, this is where we see what is functionally ruling our hearts. Remember we talked about that. We can have a stated belief in the sovereignty of God, but our functional belief will be manifested when difficulty comes. When hardships arrive at our doorstep, we will see who we trust by where we turn. 
Where do you turn when difficulty arrives in your life? Where do you turn when disappointment comes? When delay comes? When things don't happen the way you would like for them to happen, where do you turn? Does this create anger, bitterness, doubting? Where do you turn? Christian, if we're going to stand courageously, if we're going to stand as a Christian should stand, we need to answer that question. Who do you fear? Some of us talk about fearing man. Why do we fear man? Are they not but also creation? Is not every man the creation of God? Why would we elevate creation to a level where we should fear them? You you see, I can say, I believe in the sovereignty of God, but if I'm elevating man and fearing them, if I care too much about what they think, then I have elevated them to a place that only God should have. Matthew 10, 28. Jesus says, do not fear the one who can kill the body, but fear the one who can cast both body and soul into hell. We do not fear man. If we're going to stand courageously, we need a big God view. They cry out immediately upon hearing of of the threats. They cry out. They lift their voices to their sovereign Lord who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. And you and I have that same sovereign Lord who made all things. To whom do we cry? They address their prayer to the Sovereign Lord and they rest, they rest, they trust in His good providence. They pray to their Sovereign Lord and they rest in His good providence. Look again at verse 24, when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? That's a question. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. They rest in God's good providence. This is answering the question of how do they understand their circumstance? How how are they getting their mind around the circumstance they find themselves in? 
they believe that their circumstance, their present circumstance, is the result of God's good providence. What is providence? Providence, I think, simply defined, is God's purposeful sovereignty. God's purposeful sovereignty. God is sovereign. God is the absolute authority, the ruler, the owner of all. And He acts, He wills purposefully with His creation. He is not, he is not only transcendent above His creation, He also acts and works and wills inside His creation He is close, working with and in His creation. And this work of God is called His providence. God's purposeful sovereignty. They believe, the Christians here believe, that what they are experiencing, first of all, was foretold by God Himself. That's what they say. Look at it again. Verse 25. They're addressing the Sovereign Lord, and they say, verse 25, Who, the Sovereign Lord, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. Look at this. Our Sovereign Lord has said by His Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, His servant, He has said something. What God has said, they believe, explains their current experience. It was foretold by God himself. Here we have a clear text, by the way, at this very early stage in the Christian church, we have a clear text teaching divine inspiration. How did God deliver his word? By his Holy Spirit, through the mouths of his servants, he has given us his word. He's inspired, breathed out his word. He has spoken. And so the the Christians here are saying, God, we believe you have spoken about this very experience. We believe you have spoken on this matter. Here is what we're experiencing. Because it came from your mouth. It came from your words. And they quote a portion of Psalm 2. Are you familiar with Psalm 2? Psalm 2, you should be familiar with Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is an extremely important psalm that you should be very well acquainted with. In Psalm 2, and I was tempted to go to Psalm 2 and walk through Psalm 2, but you know what? We can only do one message at a time. That's my problem most of the time is I have two or three messages I'm trying to accomplish. In Psalm 2, the question is asked, why do the heathen or the nations or the Gentiles rage? Why do the peoples plot or take counsel together in vain? They are plotting, they are counseling, they are conspiring together against God. Psalm 2 is very important for forming a theology of nations. What is is the disposition of the nations towards God? They conspire against Him. And not just God, but also the anointed king 
of God. God has a king that he has anointed to rule over his kingdom, which we know will spread to the entire extremities of the earth. Well, how do the nations take that? How do the nations respond to God's kingdom and God's king? They conspire together to overthrow God, to overthrow his king, to oppose him. It is a opposition, an insolent and hate-filled opposition. And get this, these early Christians believe that what they're experiencing is tied to what Psalm 2 speaks of. You remember, they were just surrounded by religious leaders who wanted to know the power and authority in which they spoke and acted. They were opposing Jesus, who is the anointed one of God. And the Christians believe that this is a direct tie to what Psalm 2 predicts, speaks of. This opposition which is insolent, arrogant, hate-filled. It is a council together. This is, I think, important how they picture this. Look, verse 27, he says, For truly, in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, your anointed one, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. See that there? These early Christians believed, and I think rightfully so, that this opposition to God and to his king was not just coming from the Gentile nations, but also from Israel herself. Israel opposed God and his king. They believe that what has happened in Jerusalem is a direct playing out of Psalm 2. The Jewish leadership in conspiring, counseling together, joining together, this Jewish leadership has joined with the nations in opposing God and his king. But but look again at the way this is laid out. And I, I mentioned it in a moment ago, verse 25, there is asked a question, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? And it is a vain opposition. I didn't point that out. It is a vain opposition. It will not succeed. God's king will be established. God has done this. He has established his king. But how has he established his king? This is important. They answer this question. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? Do you see how they answer that question? Why did the Gentiles rage? Why did the people's plot in vain? Why did they do this? We'll look down at verse number 28. Why did they rage and plot in vain? Verse 28. They did this to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Why did they do this? Because God, you predestined it. You planned it. You accomplished it. 
Why are the nations insolent? Why are they plotting in vain? Because God, this is your plan. And it is by that plan, it is by their insolent and hate-filled opposition, it is through that opposition that they arrest Jesus and they crucify Jesus. But all along they are accomplishing God's plan, His predestined will. They believe firmly that God, by His hand and according to His plan, has predestined all of these things to take place. How has God set His King? Psalm 2. The heathens rage, the nations plot in vain. They take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, we'll... We'll throw off their chains and we will be free of them. Psalm 2 goes on to say, and God laughs at their opposition. It is in vain. And he says, as for me, I have set my king in Zion. And how did he accomplish that? Through their opposition. It was their opposition and their crucifying of Jesus through which he accomplished his perfect plan of establishing his king. It was through his plan and through their sin. He didn't just, God didn't just predict what would happen, he foretold it, he planned it. He didn't just experience, he didn't just experience their opposition. No, he orchestrated it, he ordained it. He predestines it. This is a mystery. How God predestines and plans and wills even the most evil act in human history. I was reading this last week, preparation. I don't know if... uh, I I didn't bring this book up to impress you with how big. I have not read this entire book. There's a book called Providence by John Piper. Instead of, instead of just writing it down and quoting out of it, I thought I would show you. We need to be reading good books. We need to be reading good books. This book is helpful for understanding Providence, but he talks about, Piper, page 446, he talks about the mystery of this Providence. I want you to listen to what he says. Yes, there it is, he says, the perplexing providence of God. And yes, he knows how to do this in a way that neither forces good people to be hateful against their will, nor diminishes any accountability for sin. Who was responsible for the sin of killing Jesus? The nations, including the Jewish leadership. They were responsible. And yet God is sovereign over it. Listen to this. How God governs the human heart in its acts of sinning, we are not told. That he does, we are told over and over. How he does this, we are not told. 
that he does this, we are told over and over. What sustains us when surrounded by hatred is not our ability to explain God's providence, but the unshakable fact of God's providence. And that fact will sustain us to the degree that we believe that nothing, absolutely nothing, can happen to us but by God's fatherly hand. This is what we are called to trust in. Can we explain it, the mystery of God's providence? No. But that it is a fact we can trust in absolutely. These believers trust in God's hand. And they believe that their lives are inextricably tied and connected to the life of Jesus. This is so important. As a believer in Jesus Christ, your life has been joined with his. You have been made one with him. And God's plan for you, God's plan for you, is to live out in your body and in your life the life, the pattern of Jesus Himself. This is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, we bear in our bodies the marks of the Lord Jesus. He says as he's ministering to the Corinthian church, he says, it is death for us. We die. We are brought to death for your sake. In us, death, but in you, life. This is the life of a believer. Inextricably tied to the life of Jesus. And as a result, they believe, these Christians believe, that they have been brought to their circumstance by God's good providence. The same hand and the same plan that put forth Jesus, that same hand has brought them to their current circumstance. And and it's true for each one of us as well. How do you view the circumstances you find yourself in? How do you view what befalls you in this life? This is extremely important for us to develop to develop this capacity for suffering, for difficulty, for persecution and hardship, to develop that capacity, we have to understand that there is no circumstance that you are in, there is no, no situation that you have been brought to, but by the hand of your loving Heavenly Father. He has brought you to the circumstance in which you find yourself. And it is His hand of providence, good providence, that we trust. You are not in the situation you are in because of someone's sin against you. Important that we understand that. We can get bitter and angry. We can be disappointed. We can go into despair. We can look at all the reasons why this has happened to me. How unfair it is. How unjust it is. 
But when we understand that every situation and circumstance we are in, we've been brought to that place by God's sovereign, loving providence. It gives us purpose. It gives us meaning. It gives us hope because we know that he does all things right. He does all things good. And while we would never ask for certain circumstances, we can trust in his good hand. He is wise and good and knows what we need. He knows what, what he is doing. And it is not for me to question God, but to trust him. Not to discover the mystery of providence, but to rest in it. They address their prayer to their sovereign Lord. They rest and trust in his good providence. And now that their theology is laid bare, now that their theology has been laid down, God, you are sovereign. You are the sovereign Lord who made all things. We are brought here by your, as you brought Jesus by your hand and by your plan, you predestined that to take place. You have brought us to this same place. We are trusting in your good hand. Now, once their theology is laid down, they turn to their petition. They turn to ask God. And what do they ask God for? Two things. Look at it, verse 29. And now, Lord, as your servants, we ask you, look upon their threats. Look upon their threats. See the threats. Know the threats. God, look and see what is opposing and what is against us. Look and see. Now here, the implication is that God would act. Anytime God looks and sees, what comes next is that He acts. He moves. And they are going to ask Him to move. But this is staggering. Look, look at what they ask Him to do. Look and see their threats. And here, God, is how we want you to act. Look at what he, they ask for. Look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. They do not ask for deliverance. They do not ask for protection. God, look upon their threats and get rid of them. That's not what they say. God, look upon their threats and remove them. God, look upon their threats and deliver us and protect us. Now, it is not wrong to pray for deliverance. It is not wrong to pray for protection. That's not, that's not what I'm saying. I want to be clear. I'm not saying it's wrong to pray for deliverance or protection. But the prayer for deliverance and protection often, which is our first, that, that's our first inclination, isn't it? God, deliver me from this situation. God, deliver me from this circumstance. That's our first inclination most of the time. Our first inclination, though, we know this, is usually not the best one. We, we ask, Lord, deliver us, protect us. That is not wrong. But when we ask for his deliverance and protection, oftentimes we are missing the value of the suffering, the persecution that we are enduring. We miss out on what God is doing because we are putting our hope in deliverance. And truly, truly, 
He has already answered the prayer for deliverance. Has he not? Has Jesus not delivered us from death? Has he not fully and totally delivered us from death by his death and by his resurrection? To ask him to deliver us from death, in a way, is to miss what he has already accomplished in Christ. He's already delivered us from death. That prayer has already been answered. He's already given us deliverance. For the Christian, for the Christian, our lives are brought to death for the sake of others and for the sake of his glory. We sang that just a minute ago. You remember we were singing that together? Though the nations rage, kingdoms rise and fall, there's still one king reigning over all, so I will not fear, for this truth remains, that my God is the ancient of days. Though the dread of night overwhelms my soul, he is here with me. I am not alone. Oh, his love is sure and he knows my name. For my God is the ancient of days. Though I may not see what the future brings, I will watch and wait for the Savior King. Then my joy complete, standing face to face in the presence of the ancient of days. That truth that we serve a sovereign God who has brought us by his kind and good providence to these circumstances for his glory, to make himself known through our lives. This is, this is joy for us. This is why the Apostle Paul says it was joy for them to suffer for the sake of Christ, that they would be counted worthy to suffer This is what he gives us. And before Pentecost, before Pentecost could happen, Calvary had to take place. Again, that pattern. You want to be fruitful in your life? You want to be effective in your life? You want to see people come to Jesus in your life? You want to see people know the name of Jesus in your life? That will require your dying. It will require you coming to the end of yourself. It will require death on your part. This is what is asked of you. It is is odd that we think we will reach people with the name of Jesus Christ and yet it will cost us nothing or it will not require much of us. No, it will require our death, our dying to self. This is where fruitfulness comes from and effectiveness and Christian witness comes from notice they they ask Lord grant us to continue speaking your word with all boldness to continue implying that they had already begun in boldness but they knew that what they were facing was going to be very difficult 
And they pray, Lord, grant us to continue speaking your word with all boldness. This is a prayer that God will answer. That God will answer. But, and I'm praying not to make too much of this, but he will answer it for us as we step out and speak his word. We, we cannot be idle and ask for boldness. We must step forth and speak his word, asking, Lord, help us to continue with all boldness. And they do not ask for the results. They don't ask for deliverance or protection, and they don't ask for results. In fact, that's, that's a foreign concept. They don't ask for results as much as they ask for his word to go forth. This is what they say. Now, Lord, look upon your threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. What, what are they asking for with signs and healing and wonders to be f- performed? What was, the, what was the point or the purpose of those signs and wonders? It was to attest to the truthfulness of God's word. Signs and wonders are always seen as being a servant to the word. They are not a replacement for the word. They are not to be seen as of a higher value than the word. The signs and wonders are a servant to the word. They are there to validate, to attest to the truthfulness of the word. And that's what they're asking. Lord, continue. Continue to give us boldness as we speak. And while we speak with boldness, continue to attest to the truthfulness of your word. Continue to do your work by your word through the holy name of Jesus. Continue to do that. And this is what they ask for. Not the results, not the protection or deliverance, but that God would continue to do his work. And again, God will answer that prayer. As I was, again, reading this week, John Patton, have you ever read a biography on John Patton? John Patton was a missionary to the New Hebrides, islands in his day that were filled with cannibals. He went with his wife and child. There's a lot of this biography that is really, really helpful. I wanted to read just a couple of excerpts here. Chief, among Patton's requests in prayer, was not deliverance from peril, but boldness to overcome it. Again and again, he asked for the courage to withstand. This is exactly what the New Testament saints prayed as well. Making supplication for me that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, Ephesians 6. When the enemies of Jesus threatened the early apostles with privation and death, One would expect prayers for protection and rescue, begging God for safety and security from harm. Instead, they prayed for more courage. Now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. The passage we just looked at. Boldness comes when Christians pray. The final source of Patton's courage was the belief. This is important. 
that God often uses the death of his saints to bring life to sinners. Courageous people know the casket of death for one may mean the cradle of life for another. As he struggled over the death of his wife and newborn, and yes, his wife and newborn died. As he struggled over their death, he found hope in God's providence to bring life out of death. He says, I do not pretend to see through the mystery of such visitations, wherein God calls away the young, the promising, and those sorely needed for his service here. But this I do know and feel, that in the light of such dispensations, it becomes, all, it becomes us all to love and serve our blessed Lord Jesus so that we may be ready at his call for death and eternity. This is important because a key weapon Satan employs against God's servants is the fear of dying. If fear of death is the prison Satan uses to keep Christians from occupying treacherous but needy mission fields, then the cross is the key that releases them. Through death, Jesus delivers all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Patton knew his death would only advance the gospel. Going down with his ship for one may mean a seat in the lifeboat for another. While some lose heart, others gain confidence. He would have agreed with Samuel Zwimmer's statement that the unoccupied fields of the world must have their Calvary before they can have their Pentecost. But until, and this is, this is what I wanted you to see, but until God willed otherwise, Patton was indestructible. When a deadly throng of cannibals encircled Patton and his comrade, he lifted up his heart in prayer to God. Peace overwhelmed him. He said, I realized that I was immortal till my master's work with me was done. The assurance came to me as if a voice out of heaven had spoken that not a musket would be fired to wound us, not a club prevail to strike us, not a spear leave the hand in which it was held vibrating to be thrown, not an arrow leave the bow or a killing stone the fingers without the permission of Jesus Christ. This is why Paul could say, with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. God's servants are most courageous when life or death is a win-win. Courage is not merely an admirable quality for a Christian. It is a necessary one. Let us learn from this prayer for courage, for boldness, addressing, calling out to our sovereign Lord, resting in the hand of God's good providence, asking for his word to go forth be victorious, ready and willing to boldly step into whatever circumstance, whatever death he calls us to. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look at your word, just the grace that we have by, by having your word. You have given us such a wonderful gift the revelation of yourself. We've been given so much. We are rich in grace. And you have counted us worthy to bring us to circumstances and situations that are hard 
where we suffer, deal with difficulty and hardship, I pray for us as a people that we would, by your grace, build and develop a capacity for suffering and for difficulty, and yes, even for persecution, that we would ready ourselves for the hatred that comes with being associated with the name of Jesus. That we would even now prepare ourselves for that and be ready to step into those situations boldly, courageously, trusting in you and your providence, your good providence. The results are up to you. The protection and deliverance is up to you. But we, we pray that we would live in the reality of the deliverance you've already given us in Jesus. You have delivered us from everything that could be feared. I pray for those who are here this morning who do not rest in you, who still by their will and by their insolence oppose you, hatefully even. I pray that you would bring them to a place of repentance, that they would see their sin against you. They would repent and turn from their hatred and their opposition to you and your King Jesus, that you would give them the gift of repentance and faith in Jesus, his death and resurrection to be their only way of salvation. Even today, we pray, and we give you the glory and praise and honor for all things, for by your will they exist and were created. Amen.